Jonestown. There are individuals in this world that are commonly referred to as born leaders, those who naturally possess the intellect, charisma, personality, and drive that causes others to follow them in pursuit of a goal. These types of individuals can end up in all sorts of walks of life, from politics to business, but the one we'll be discussing today was involved with an ideology. The story of Jim Jones and his commune, generally referred to as Jonestown, is certainly a tragic one, involving a massive loss of life due to the actions of a single, influential figure. The Jonestown Massacre would turn out to be the greatest single loss of American life in a deliberate act until the events of September 11th, and thus its infamy has led to plenty of books and documentaries being created about it. This video will only provide an organized summary of Jim Jones and the events that led up to the massacre on November 18, 1978. James Warren Jones was born in 1931 in a rural town in Indiana during the midst of the Great Depression. During his childhood, Jim was regarded as really weird by childhood acquaintances who was obsessed with religion and death, frequently holding funerals for small animals. Additionally, he spent much of his time reading, studying the lives and philosophies of figures such as Stalin, Marx, Mao, and Hitler. Jim liked to pretend that he was a Soviet soldier or Japanese, as he identified more with their ideologies than that of America's. Jones's father was allegedly involved with the Ku Klux Klan, which Jones heavily disagreed with, leading to a falling out between the two. After his parents separated, Jim lived with his mother in Richmond, Indiana, graduated with honors from high school, and a year later married a nurse. The two relocated to Bloomington, Indiana, where Jim attended college for some time before moving to Indianapolis. Jim had become increasingly interested and involved with the communist ideology, specifically Marxism, partially due to a friendship with a supervisor at a job he had who protected him after Jim messed with some financials of some salesman. According to Jim, he had shifted some money away from a man he referred to as a macho-type racist and directed it to another man with a handicapped child, but also took some for himself. The supervisor, who was himself a communist, shielded Jim from the potential charges of embezzlement, endearing himself to Jim and encouraging him to look further into communism. In 1951, in Indianapolis, Jim began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA and became increasingly bothered by the treatment of communists in the US at the time, it being the height of McCarthyism. Jim wanted to spread Marxism through the country, and he decided that the best way to do that was by infiltrating the church. In 1952, he became a student pastor at a Methodist church, but would eventually leave the church because, according to him, they wouldn't let him integrate blacks into his congregation. He also later became aware of the attention and money that faith healing services could bring in, and in 1956, he organized a large religious convention, bringing in a well-known faith healer to share the pulpit with him. The attention from this convention allowed Jim to start his own church, the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, or the People's Temple. Jim himself was not religious, later referring to himself as either agnostic or atheistic, 
and his only real goal in growing the church was to continue spreading his Marxist ideologies. This was kept largely a secret in the early days though, as Jim continued to hold faith-healing demonstrations and clairvoyant revelations, all of which were faked. The People's Temple did stress some egalitarian ideals, such as asking members to attend services in casual clothes so that everyone appeared equal, providing shelter for the homeless, and operating a soup kitchen, among other services. Jones became known as a champion of racial integration during this time, adopting a number of children of different ethnicities, and becoming the director of the local Human Rights Commission in Indianapolis. Jones was a very public figure, ignoring the advice of the mayor and other commissioners to keep a low profile, and would frequently go onto the radio and television to speak. He helped desegregate churches, restaurants, the Indianapolis Police Department, and other businesses in the area, but ended up receiving a great deal of criticism and threats from some members of the community. Jones's lack of love for American ideals led him to looking elsewhere for a place to set up the temple, starting with a city in Brazil that he read was a safe place in the case of a nuclear war. Although the language barrier proved to be an issue, Jones and his family spent some time living in Brazil, and he was careful not to portray himself as a communist to the locals, instead speaking of setting up an apostolic commune. The lack of resources in the area led the family to move to Rio de Janeiro in 1963, where they worked with the poor for some time. Back in Indiana, however, the temple he had left behind was not doing well without him, and feeling guilty about the situation, Jones returned to the US in December of 1963. When he returned, he warned his congregation that the world would be engulfed in nuclear war on July 15, 1967 and the temple had to move to Northern California for safety. The People's Temple was soon after relocated to Redwood Valley in California, and Jones began the process of being more open about his communistic ideals instead of religion. Jones began preaching against the Christian God in the Bible, saying that there's no heaven above us, so we'll have to make heaven down here. This was a gradual process, as Jones often used people's religious faith to help draw them in, and said that if they saw him as a friend, he'd be their friend, if they saw him as a savior, he'd be their savior, and if they saw him as their god, he'd be their god. Jones's words were powerful among certain sections of the population, including the downtrodden, the neglected, and the vulnerable, and the majority of the members of his community were black most of which were women. The People's Temple grew exponentially in California, leading to new branches being opened in San Fernando, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. The temple's headquarters was relocated to San Francisco, and Jones became influential in local politics, helping to elect a new mayor in 1975. Jones's influence began to spread to higher political figures, such as vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale and the first lady, Rosalind Carter. The temple continued to put on faked faith healing services across the country, bringing in thousands of dollars every week, and taking in hundreds of dollars from mailed-in donations every day. In San Francisco, the temple services regularly drew in an estimated 3,000 people, and they handled at least nine residential care homes for the elderly, six homes for foster children, and a 40-acre ranch for the developmentally disabled. 
The People's Temple also handled members' insurance claims and any legal problems. Not all was well within the People's Temple, however, as Jones's outspoken nature and the continued spread of the organization led to increased scrutiny from the media. One particular article was especially worrisome for Jones, looking at his increased political influence in San Francisco and the peculiar circumstances at his headquarters. Some former members of the group spoke out against Jones and the People's Temple, citing the physical and emotional abuse that members underwent, as well as the amount of control that the church leaders had over the members. Members were heavily encouraged to turn over all of their possessions to the church, and certain members were also instructed to write incriminating letters about themselves that could later be used as blackmail. It seems that the state of the church and Jones himself had been on a steady decline over the years, becoming increasingly a more abusive and regimented organization. This would turn out to be the final straw for Jones in the United States, as he abruptly announced that the headquarters of the People's Temple was being relocated to Guyana, a country in South America that Jones had briefly visited on his way to Brazil. Jones had always planned on moving the group to Guyana, and had started the building process years prior, but the media scrutiny rushed the plan quite a bit. The housing situation there wasn't fully complete, so only around a thousand members of the temple ended up moving to the People's Temple Agricultural Project in the summer of 1977, better known as Jonestown. Jonestown was located on an isolated section of land 150 miles west of the capital, consisting of around 3,800 acres. The land possessed soil of low fertility, and the nearest body of water was seven miles away. Guyanese officials had negotiated the deal with Jones because the location was not far from their disputed border with Venezuela, and they hoped that the presence of American citizens would deter a military incursion. Jones set up the community as a pure communist society dedicated to complete equality, and many members of the church that went with him believed in this goal. Jones himself became increasingly delusional, paranoid, and addicted to various drugs, leading to a steadily decline in conditions in Jonestown. Members of the community would work for 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, later reduced to 8 hours, 5 days a week, and would spend the rest of their evenings involved in various studies, lectures, or discussions heavily related to Marxism, Socialism, and Soviet documentaries. Jonestown was not self-sustaining, necessitating the import of large quantities of various commodities, and members lived in small communal houses, often eating little more than rice and beans. Medical problems were common, and various forms of punishment were administered on a regular basis, such as beatings, imprisonment in small boxes, or forcing children to spend a night at the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. No one was allowed to leave Jonestown without permission from Jones, and armed guards patrolled the area constantly to prevent anyone from escaping. Despite this, when officials from the local U.S. Embassy interviewed 75 members of the community about their social security benefits being signed over to the temple, none of them stated that they were being held captive or signing over the checks against their will. Conditions in Jonestown continued to decline alongside Jones's mental and physical health, and a number of events would contribute to the tragic climax in November of 1978. In September of 1977, 
two former members of the church, Timothy and Grace Stone, worked with the local courts to attempt to return custody of their five-year-old son back to them. Two weeks after their son was born, Timothy had signed an affidavit stating that the son's father was Jim Jones, which would legally bind him to Jones. Although Grace had left the church prior to the move to Guyana, Timothy and their son had gone to Jonestown, but it wasn't long before Timothy fled to help Grace regain custody. The court ordered that the boy be taken into protective custody, but Jones refused, instead setting up a false sniper attack against himself to rally his followers against the fear of governmental conspiracy. Jones's paranoia continued to grow, and he would occasionally carry out events he referred to as White Nights, in which the members of Jonestown would vote on what to do in case the government launched a raid on their settlement. Their options were to attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, flee into the jungle, stay and fight the attackers, or commit revolutionary suicide. On at least two occasions, when a vote of committing revolutionary suicide was decided, the community rehearsed a simulated mass suicide. All of the members of the community, including children, were lined up and given a small glass of liquid to drink, which they were told would kill them within 45 minutes. The members of Jonestown did as they were told, but 45 minutes later, Jones revealed that it was only a loyalty test, but the time was not far off when the real thing would become necessary. Meanwhile, the Stones continued to battle for custody, and began writing letters to various governmental officials in an attempt to bring further attention to the situation in Jonestown. An article written up about the custody battle in the San Francisco Examiner prompted the threat of a lawsuit from Jones, but this only served to further damage the reputation of Jonestown. A group of defectors of the temple gathered together, referring to themselves as the concerned relatives, and proceeded to spread documents to members of the press and members of Congress detailing the human rights violations carried out by Jones and the temple. Timothy Stone, a lawyer himself, represented the concerned relatives in court against the temple, seeking in excess of $56 million in damages. The temple responded with a countersuit, seeking $150 million in damages. Jones hired the legal services of two individuals who were both noted conspiracy theorists to help make the case of a grand conspiracy by U.S. intelligence agencies against the People's Temple. They would go on to hold press conferences stating that all of the claims of human rights violations are complete falsehoods, and that there was a massive conspiracy against Jones and the Temple consisting of various agencies, including the CIA, FBI, and even the U.S. Post Office. Jones's health continued to decline due to the poor conditions of Jonestown, coupled with the large amounts of drugs that he was taking. Jones was suffering from lung infections, high blood pressure, small strokes, temporary blindness, convulsions, chronic insomnia, and the swelling of extremities. He developed troubles with speaking, a sharp change from his healthier days, and could barely even read typed reports out loud sometimes. Things culminated in November of 1978, when U.S. Representative Leo Ryan announced that he would personally visit Jonestown to investigate the claims of abuse and rights violations. Ryan was friends with the father of a member of the temple whose body was found mutilated a few days after a phone call in which leaving the temple was discussed, 
and Ryan's worry about the group continued to grow from there. The group that flew to Jonestown included Ryan, his legal advisor, a Guyanese official, an official from the U.S. Embassy, a number of reporters, and a number of members of the concerned relatives, including the Stones. Upon arrival in Guyana, the group was initially refused entrance to Jonestown by the temple's legal representatives, but eventually, due to their insistence, they were allowed inside on November 17th. Due to aircraft limitations, the Stones remained behind in Georgetown, while the rest continued on to Jonestown. A party was held that evening that went well, but afterwards Jones spent some time ranting about government conspiracies and said he felt like a dying man. Two members of the temple secretly passed a note to the group that night asking for help in getting out of Jonestown. A child witnessed the passing of the note and alerted other temple members. Despite this, four of the group stayed in Jonestown that night, while the rest stayed in a small village six miles away. During the morning of November 18th, 11 members of the temple fled Jonestown, and later in the afternoon, a number more went to the group and asked to be escorted out of Jonestown. Jones gave the members permission to leave, along with the member who had passed the note the previous night. Most of the visiting group then began to head back to the airstrip, while Ryan and the U.S. Embassy official stayed to see if anyone else wanted to leave. Shortly before the group left, however, a loyal member of the temple stated that he wanted to go with them, although several of the defectors voiced their suspicions about his motives. Shortly after the group left, a temple member with a knife grabbed Ryan. Ryan was uninjured as other members wrestled the man to the ground, but he departed from Jonestown and caught up with the others. Before leaving, however, he told the temple's legal representative that his report would describe Jonestown in basically good terms, and that the people that wanted to leave were definitely in the minority. At the airstrip, the group had to wait for a second plane to accommodate the additional passengers they were now taking with them. The second plane arrived at 5.10pm, and the boarding process began. The loyal member who went with, Larry Layton, boarded the smaller plane and after it began moving, he produced a handgun and started shooting the other passengers, wounding two of them before being disarmed. Around the same time, members of the temple's security squad arrived at the airstrip armed with shotguns, handguns, and rifles, and opened fire on the larger plane. Five individuals were killed, including Leo Ryan, while nine others were injured. The uninjured fled in the smaller plane, while the damaged plane, the dead, and the wounded were left on the airstrip. Despite the fact that Ryan was planning a positive report, Jones believed that he had failed his mission, and preparations were made for the real revolutionary suicide. Aides prepared a large metal tub filled with grape flavor aid, and poisoned it with a variety of chemicals, including cyanide, which Jones had been purchasing for the prior two years, due to obtaining a jeweler's license and claiming it was for cleaning gold. The members of Jonestown were gathered at the Central Pavilion, where Jones announced that the time had come for them to commit revolutionary suicide, as a statement that they chose their own way to go, refusing capitalism in support of socialism. Some members believed that they should attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, but others were convinced of this path, believing that once the government came in, 
the adults would be executed, and the children would be converted to fascism. Most arguments died down once it became known that Ryan had been killed on the airstrip. The first to take the poison was allegedly a mother and her one-year-old infant, who squirted a syringe of the liquid into the child's mouth, followed by her own. As more members began to take the poison and see its effects, realizing that it was no longer a rehearsal, some showed a reluctance, but the security brigade surrounded the pavilion armed with weapons. The poison took around five minutes to kill the children, less for the infants, and around 20 to 30 minutes for the adults. During this time, most simply waited quietly to die, many of them walking around like in a trance, and the pavilion was filled with cries and screams. Jones told the group to die with a degree of dignity, not with tears and agony, and that this death was a million times more preferable to what was coming. Eventually, the guards themselves were called in to take the poison as well. An audio recording was made of the event if you're truly inclined to listen to it, but I won't be playing any of the audio here. The body of Jim Jones himself was found next to his chair in the pavilion, with what appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. In total, 918 people died on November 18, 1978, 909 in the pavilion, 276 of which were children, including the Stone's child. In the nearby city of Georgetown, a temple member received a radio communication before the massacre, telling her to take revenge on the temple's enemies before committing revolutionary suicide. After police arrived at the temple's headquarters in the city, the woman escorted her three children into a bathroom, killing the two youngest with a kitchen knife. Her oldest child then helped kill her with the knife before finally killing herself. Despite any of the good actions that Jim Jones had accomplished throughout his life, his delusions, megalomania, paranoia, and beliefs led him down a perpetually darker path. Had he not been as intelligent and charismatic as he was, perhaps the only life he would have thrown away was his own. But as it stands, he perpetrated one of the greatest mass murders in the history of the United States. While the Jonestown Massacre is often believed in the public conscious to be yet another cult suicide, it's important to note the specific distinctions of this event. While there were certainly members of the community that were perfectly fine committing suicide in that moment, many more were not, instead either being forced or feeling forced to do so. This makes the Jonestown Massacre exactly that, a massacre, and one of the darker events in modern history. <laughs> 